From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The governor is our guest after a week of highs and lows. Vaccines are getting into arms, but variants are circulating. The All-Star Game's coming, but so is the height of fire season. The state needs to get involved earlier, very proactively, to defeat fires before they spread to fires of state concern. Plus, what changes Polis would like to see to gun laws after the mass shooting in his hometown. Then we check back in with one of the first Colorado families to lose a loved one to COVID-19. He clearly had a sense of the way things were going. And he said, this is not the end of life situation I hoped for. He did make a very brave choice in the end. He chose not to be put on a ventilator. I'm Allison Sherry from CPR News. Every day, I aggressively seek out the most important criminal justice news in the state and deliver it to you with context. I'm thankful that you value responsible fact-based journalism that gives you insight on how Colorado's justice system works. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's happening in all parts of the state. Today, I'm asking you to make this reporting possible. Please donate at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We caught up with Governor Jared Polis during a very busy week of news. The All-Star Game is coming to Colorado. More vaccines are getting into arms as new COVID strains circulate. The president announces executive actions to prevent mass shootings like the one in Boulder. So let's jump right into our regular conversation with Governor Polis, recorded Thursday afternoon. Governor, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. You recently loosened the statewide mask mandate, which prompted a lot of questions from our Twitter followers. Some ask if it's necessary to have a mandate at all, while others wonder why masks wouldn't be required across the board, especially in light of a recent surge in Pueblo and Jefferson counties. Why is your policy allowing low-incidence counties to go maskless the right approach? Well, we renewed the mask requirement for the whole state. It just takes a slightly different form in different counties. So uh, in every county in the state, uh, students are wearing masks in school. We don't want to jeopardize the successful return to school of Colorado. Personal services, haircut, uh, massage, those are mask wearing. There are a number of smaller counties in the state where there's very low incidence of the virus. So they no longer have that mass requirement just if they're casually around others. It's only in those uh, more intimate circumstances that it applies. But what's important is no matter what your city or county requires for mask wearing is that you simply wear a mask. You make the right choice for yourself when you're around others, especially if you're not vaccinated. Um, the smart thing is to wear a mask. And as people get vaccinated, you can absolutely let up on that a little bit. You don't have to worry about that as much. But until you're successfully vaccinated, which means 15 days after your second vaccine, or in the case of Johnson & Johnson, 15 days after your first and only vaccine, it's really important now more than ever to wear, wear a mask. Hospitalizations are going up and we're seeing a surge across the country in COVID and hospitalizations. I just want to point out, you both have had COVID and I believe have been fully vaccinated. Against that backdrop, I ask how long you personally plan to wear a mask when you're outside your home. That's a good question. I still do it as a role model. I want to say it's it's never been required in in the town I live in, Boulder, um, outside. But I do wear it whenever I walk the dog and I, I do that 
religiously because I know that, you know, people see me and, and it's important that I wear a mask. So I, I do wear a mask and I, I plan to keep that up at least for the next month or so. Uh, and I can say as somebody who's both had COVID and somebody who's had the vaccination, it is much worse having COVID. Please get vaccinated. You know, your arm might be a little sore the next day. You may have a headache, but COVID is far worse. As, as you know, Ryan, my partner, Marlon was hospitalized for two days. Um, you know, I lost some smell for a while. It was not fun. Um, the vaccine is quick and easy. You don't even have to get out of your car if you want to do it in a drive through site. It's super easy to do, and you can get it at your local pharmacy, too. As you look at vaccinations statewide, are there pockets of hesitancy or avoidance that are concerning you? Well, uh, right now, we are still in a situation where demand exceeds supply. And that can be frustrating for people who might not be able to get an appointment for a week or two weeks. And I, I, I get that. But we're not that far away, Ryan. We're probably only about a month away, late April, early May, early to mid-May. We'll be in a situation where supply exceeds demand. And that's when we really need to work hard on outreach to our peers, really involving uh, people's family doctors and personal physicians and other ambassadors that are trusted in, in different communities to get out the word about this amazing triumph of modern science. I mean, it's interesting you say demand exceeds supply. I'll just reveal a little bit of a personal adventure I had, which is that I was able to find an orphan dose in a place where people are not necessarily bending over backwards to get the vaccine. So it's not an entirely black or white picture here, is it? Well, I, I would say if we get about four to 500,000 doses a week for the state of Colorado, from the federal government. We're grateful for that. It's up from 100,000. But what I can tell you, Ryan, is that if we got seven or 800,000 in a week, we would be able to use all seven or 800,000. That is the gap between demand and supply statewide. Lots of attention this week on baseball's all-star game coming to Colorado. But I actually want to ask you about basketball and hockey. The Nuggets and Avalanche got permission from your administration to host fans indoors. The team's owners say they worked with the state, the CDC, the NBA, the NHL on safety protocols. Governor, we know COVID-19 is spread in the air. We know the indoors are riskier than outside. Ventilation can be an issue. I'm thinking also of singing and screaming and droplets. I mean, the national anthem, for instance, people with masks off as they drink beer. Uh, is this a wise decision to have indoor sporting events? Well, we're, we're in a situation, Ryan, where a quarter of our adult population is immune. And absolutely, I wouldn't. I've been vaccinated and, and I've, I've had COVID. I probably get more immunity from the vaccination. I wouldn't hesitate to, to go to a Nuggets game or, or an Avs game. And anybody who's vaccinated should absolutely feel comfortable doing that. If you're not vaccinated, absolutely, you're taking a risk. Um, you have to choose what kind of risk you're comfortable with. Uh, I personally would, would not go to a game if I wasn't vaccinated. I, I wouldn't even feel comfortable necessarily going out to eat in a restaurant if I wasn't vaccinated. Now, I have been vaccinated and I have been out to eat in a restaurant. It's great. And it's wonderful to see so many folks reemerging, especially people in their 60s and 70s that have taken such extreme precautions and seeing them enjoying, you know, indoor dining again. And uh, hopefully they're out cheering on the nuggets as well. It's an interesting thing to say if you've been vaccinated. Can you foresee a scenario in which... Colorado only allows tourists in or into certain places if they can prove that they've been vaccinated, a kind of passport. That's how this has been referred to. Any conversations in your administration about something like that? 
Well, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be coming from the state or from us. I mean, there there might very well. Be, I've heard you know airlines talking about it. They require tests for international flights. Maybe they won't require a test if you're vaccinated. Uh, I think you might see some instances of that uh, in the waning days of the pandemic. But there's not a long period of time here till everybody who wants to be vaccinated will be vaccinated. I mean, we really are expecting that by the end of May, which means immunity by the end of June. So uh, we're only a couple months off from that date. Okay, you do not see something like that coming from state government, in other words. Uh, well, no, it wouldn't come. It wouldn't come from state government. I mean, you know, private businesses are able to do what they want. I, I think I read an article that there was some Denver bar looking at doing that and having people who are vaccinated and, and then, uh, you know, they could pack them in more. And I don't know who else will want to do that. But, you know, it's, it just sort of operates by the laws of the marketplace. It's consumer demand. I mean, if consumers value a safe place where they know that everybody around them is vaccinated, then I, I guarantee you the market will deliver on that kind of location. If consumers feel comfortable enough being vaccinated themselves and not worrying if, you know, only 80 or 90 percent of the people around them are vaccinated, then the market won't deliver on that. It's really just a question of what consumers want. You have struck, I think so far, a very optimistic tone. I do want to say that the CDC announced the detection of the P1 variant in Colorado. This is the strain that has devastated Brazil. How worried are you that variants could upend all of the the progress that you've spoken of so far? Well, it seems likely that the reason that we have an uptick now in our state in hospitalizations and cases is because of the variants as well as across the country. So this is a race against time, which is why I want everybody listening to uh, get vaccinated as soon as you can. It's free. There's no cost. It takes 15, 20 minutes. Probably takes you longer to sign up than it does to, to get the vaccine. And if you do sign up on a list, you, you'll, you'll get your chance in the next week or two or three, you know, the local hospital, local pharmacy. So far, Ryan, and, and obviously my optimism is predicated on this, the vaccine is highly effective against all the variants that have been detected. And uh, as long as that's the case, then I'm comfortable at the end of the pandemic is in sight, um, really late May, early June. And so you've seen enough evidence that you think the vaccines are strong enough against that P1 variant? That's what we've. That's what's been observed so far. Okay. Um, that that the vaccines are still highly effective. They have uh, slightly. There's some evidence that they have slightly decreased efficacy against some of the variants. But when, you know, as long as you're talking in the 80 percent, 90 percent range, you still have a extremely highly effective vaccine. Governor Polis to guns after the mass shooting in your hometown of Boulder. There are moves at the state and federal level to try to prevent more mass shootings. Uh, Here in Colorado, there's been talk of a state-level assault weapons ban, but a prominent lawmaker on this issue, Tom Sullivan, who lost his son in the Aurora Theater shooting, recently told my colleague Benta Berkland this about a state-specific ban. Well, I mean, it, it diverts all of the attention. I mean, if, 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 if we were to ban something here, I mean, it'd be very easy to go to any of the, the, the surrounding states. Governor, do you want to see a state-level ban on assault-style weapons? Well, I think what you need to do is have a discussion about what would have the biggest impact on keeping people safe. And if you look at this case, and you know, I live in Boulder, I've been to that King Supers many times in South Boulder. It's not my primary grocery store, but when I'm in South Boulder, I often go there. Um, there's a number of issues that, that arise. One is simply the issue, hey, here's somebody who had a conviction for a violent offense before. Why was he able to buy a gun, right? Let, let, forget about the type of gun. Uh, let's look at the classification of violent offense that prohibits you from purchasing a gun, at least for a period of time, maybe a decade, maybe five years. Uh, Many offenses do. Why did his violent offense not preclude him from purchasing any gun? 
another uh, issue is our red flag law. Our red flag law that I signed into law could have been used in this instance. Family didn't know about it. You know, we, we need better outreach. It's been mostly used by law enforcement. We'd like to make sure that families knew about it. When parents see their, their kid uh, with a gun and they're worried about their mental state uh, and they're showing signs of, of risk, an extreme risk, risk protection order can be a great tool. And, and it should be something that, uh, especially when a kid is 18, 19, or 20, or 21, you know, when they're under 18, the parents can simply take the gun. But if they're 19 or 20, what recourse do the parents have if they're worried about their own kid causing immediate harm to themselves or others? We do have a law, but that doesn't do us as much good if people don't know about how to use that law. And, and I'd like to see more outreach on that. Is it important to you that there be a ban on assault weapons at the state or at the federal level? Well, I think when we look at true measures to keep people safe, it's always better to do things at the federal level. Let's take Colorado's background check as an example. And I do think we should fix it from the learning from this instance about what types of violent crime preclude you from buying a gun. But you know what? Anybody who doesn't pass a background check in Colorado can drive to Wyoming and in an open air gun show, purchase a weapon without a background check. So we we absolutely need a national background check system. Uh, doesn't mean we shouldn't fix what we we can. But uh, of course, uh, I support the efforts of President Biden and others to help reduce these kinds of mass shooter events. And, you know, you served in Congress, so I imagine you had some perspective on this. Uh, do you think that there should be a reinstatement of what had been in place, a federal assault weapons ban? Oh, when I was in Congress, I did uh, support that effort to reinstate that. And uh, if we can do that nationally, uh, first of all, I, you know, the, the background check, uh, it was very important in, in fixing that, uh, looking at what, you know, in Colorado, we took a different route. We limited the magazines, which in effect prevents, you know, high-speed weapons from having magazines of greater than 15 purchased legally. Of course, um, you know, they're, they can still be purchased illegally, just as a weapon itself could. I'll just say that the president announced Thursday he'd sign a series of executive orders that would make weapons using a stabilizing brace subject to the National Firearms Act. Uh, This was the accessory the suspect apparently used in the King Super shooting. Biden also wants to pave the way for states to pass red flag laws, which, as you have mentioned, Colorado has. And uh, Biden wants more regulation of so-called ghost guns. When it comes to a state-level assault weapons ban, do, do you think that's the right approach in Colorado right now? Well, look, I, I think that what we should do is probably make the changes that would re, would save the most number of lives and reduce the likelihood of these kinds of instances of gun violence. And what stri- is striking from this case is how is this young man who had a prior history of violent offense able to legally buy a gun? I, I'm not, you know, I think he had two guns, right? I'm not concerned about the model of the gun at this point. Why was he able to, to, to buy a weapon when he had a recent conviction for a violent offense? So I think some real diligence and in looking into that could, could help prevent this kind of thing from happening again, as well as doing a better job publicizing the resources that are available to parents and loved ones in the form of the extreme risk protection order or red flag law. Let's talk transportation. The General Assembly is considering a proposal to raise $4 billion over the next decade for transportation. Uh, In addition, President Biden is pushing a massive bill that would pour money into the country's infrastructure. Given that transportation is a huge contributor of greenhouse gases, how will climate change guide the choices your administration makes when it comes to these investments? Well, I haven't fully studied the federal package yet, although I understand it has some strong green components as well. But I can talk with some knowledge about at least the draft of the state 
proposal, which includes what we call multimodal transportation, which means bus and increased uh, light rail and train. It includes charging stations and electric electric vehicle infrastructure, as well as making sure we have the state of repair money needed for lanes and roads and bridges, which even electric vehicles rely upon. So when you look at what's been happening in transportation and why Colorado has so much traffic and poor road quality. It's a, it's a confluence of several factors. One is simply increasing population, increased utilization, but that's coupled with decreased funding. Why decreased funding? It's because vehicles are more fuel efficient and there's now electric vehicles and they, they pay less and less of the gas tax that funds our roads. So we need to fix that. And we also need to provide some relief to motorists in their pocketbooks up front. That's why my priorities include either lowering the gas tax or lowering the vehicle registration fee. And I think the drafts include lowering the vehicle registration fee, which would save Colorado motorists uh, over $90 million over the next two years. I think there are concerns particularly about whether this would be invested into highway widening projects. For instance, Ben Harris of Denver asks on Twitter, how are widening highways in the state's climate goals congruent? Speaking of the, you know, $1.5 billion uh, of raised revenue potentially from the legislature that will go towards highways. Well, we want Coloradans to not have to waste as much time in traffic. The average economic costs of the time that you or I spend lost in traffic, Ryan, is about $650 per person in the state. That's how much time we lose. Economic time. That doesn't even take into account this sort of priceless cost. Well, how do you even put a price tag on missing your kid's soccer game or missing a church service because you were stuck in traffic? Those things don't have an economic price, but they're every bit something that Coloradans suffer from. So we need to improve this. And of course, what makes a difference in, in reducing our air pollution is the conversion to electric vehicles. And uh, a transportation modernization plan like the one being worked on by Senator Fenberg, Speaker Garnett, Senator Winter, Representative Gray, will accelerate the transition to zero emission and low emission vehicles. And I think that's a net plus for air quality, as well as reducing traffic for all of us. So you really see electric vehicles as the catalyst here, of, w w rather than catalytic converter. Okay, that's a terrible pun. Uh, but but um, <laughs> that is to say, I don't hear you talking necessarily about transit as central to this. And I just want to note that our transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner, told Avery Lill this week that in the state proposal, there isn't any money for Colorado's largest transit agency, RTD. Well, the, the yeah, RTD is not is not something that is run by the state. And, and right now, I and many others at the state level are not always happy with everything RTD does. So we're certainly not about to give them money. Uh, but the state absolutely supports local transit. And that means bus service. It means bus staying, the ski staying service that we launched. Uh, a number of others that would be beefed up through this transportation proposal. RTD is not a statewide thing. It's, it's just certain counties that are in it. They have their own tax base that funds them. We are looking at a statewide picture. And yes, absolutely, transit is part of modernizing transportation across the state. But how can you say that if the largest transit agency in the state wouldn't benefit from these state dollars? Well, what they need is reform, uh, not money. And uh, they're getting quite a bit of money from the federal government. I'm excited they're now working on the plans for delivering on some of their promises. Uh, but that's not a statewide entity. When we talk about modernizing transportation funding for roads and bridges, we're talking about across our entire state, for Highway 70, for Highway 25, for surface roads. There's a share with local governments that they use for their city streets. So it's really a much more comprehensive approach. And while I wish RTD the best, 
and I know that there's a number of bills, that, and I hope to sign one that uh, will allow them to compete better and, and do better. Uh, they certainly don't have a monopoly on public transit. Colorado's drought map, Governor, is a desiccated mix of reds and oranges. And the wildfire forecast out this week is pretty bleak. Uh, when that forecast was released, you mentioned how many people are moving into fire-prone areas. And apparently the state's firefighting approach will be, quote, aggressive initial attack. What does that mean? Well, it, it's really a, a bit of a shift in firefighting strategies over the last decade. So traditionally, and this is still formally how it's run, is a fire is run locally, which means by a county sheriff, local fire district, until and meets a certain threshold where it involves the state. Um, what this means is the state needs to get involved earlier, very proactively, to defeat fires before they spread to fires of state concern. And, and we're, we're going to be investing resources with our new Firehawk helicopter. It'll be delivered next year, but we're leasing one for this fire season. Uh, I signed a bill with additional resources that'll help invent and invest in mitigation and response. And that that be early with the idea that these fires don't continue to grow, I guess. That, that's correct. You know, once they're out of control, it ta it's very, very difficult for, you know, even all the resources we have to contain them. We certainly try to establish a perimeter, protect where people live. But we need to do more earlier on more fires. And we're seeing more and more of these fire events, longer and longer fire season. In fact, another thing we talked about, it's, it's not even, it can't even be said we have a fire season anymore. It's really become a round-the-year phenomena where we have to be ready at any time, anywhere to spring into action. How important is it for you that the legislature adjourn in June, having passed a public health insurance option? Well, uh, first of all, I think if you know if there's anything we've learned about you know the importance of healthcare this last year, it's that people need need healthcare, and, and thankfully, uh, the vaccine is free. Uh, but imagine a world where many other many other things are not free, um, and many people don't get the treatment they need because they can't afford it. So I support prescription drug reforms to save people money on healthcare. I support a public option to save people money on healthcare. Importation from, we got the authority to import from Canada. There's a bill to import from other countries. Uh, there's a, a multi-pronged approach. There's no silver bullet. Absolutely having more choice in insurance and a public option is one of the pieces of the solution. And, and there's even more to it than that as well. Is it a piece you want to see passed this year? Well, of course, I'd like, you know, I'm always impatient, Ryan. I'd like to see everything we can do to save people money past tomorrow. Um, but we're, you know, again, we, we hope that we have some good successes to celebrate. Uh, it would be great to see Colorado have another choice with a Colorado option. It would be great to see some prescription drug pricing reforms, some ability to import from other countries to save money, uh, and a number of other efforts that are underway to help save people money on health care. Thank you so much, Governor. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care, Ryan. Democratic Governor Jared Polis, we recorded our regular conversation Thursday afternoon. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the story of one of the first Coloradans to die of COVID-19. We check back in with his family a year later. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken. Last season, we told stories of recovery and hope. 
and you listened. Back from Broken inspired me to... I've been really blown away by Back from Broken. I've learned something from every story your brave guests have shared. This season on Back from Broken, more stories about hope. Happiness is just like right here. It's in being alive. Find Back from Broken on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It was one of Colorado's first COVID deaths. Mike Farley of Denver passed away March 23, 2020, at age 87. When we spoke with his family just about a year ago, we were still trying to wrap our heads around virtual deathbeds and virtual funerals. I mean, even though we got to listen to the last rites over the nurse's phone, I felt so sad for him because he was essentially dying alone. And I know he didn't want to. It had a surreal quality to it because it was happening over a phone. And what I remember most is a grasping through the audio to connect with dad, which was there, but it was very, very difficult. And I just projected and and hoped that dad truly felt it and knew it. I think he did. The voice is there of Mike Farley's son, John, and daughter, Maggie. Farley was a retired Denver attorney and humanitarian with what his family describes as a stubborn sense of justice. And today we check back in with the Farleys. His wife, Nancy, kids Maggie and John, and granddaughter Aria are all on the line. And welcome, everyone. Thank you for being with us. Hi. You're welcome. Nancy, Hello. Hello. Nancy, I understand that you have found a way to keep Mike's memory close, as close as your breath, in fact. (laughs) Yes. Out of his bathrobe and his many shirts, I have made many masks. And um, and a a neighbor came by uh, one day and she said, oh, I recognize that fabric. Oh. It was it was Mike's bathrobe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he would sometimes still be in his bathrobe late morning because after reading the Denver Post and the New York Times and checking all of his emails, he would get stuck on the game of solitaire, and he would be on the machine until he won. So and he was still <laughs> in his bathrobe. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, he was recognizable for having worn this material, I guess. Yes. When, when you think back a year ago, Nancy, and what has transpired since, what stands out? Oh, that, that's, there are so many things that stand out. I think it's how we have all had to readjust. I think it's how friendships have become even more important. Uh, support from family and friends and, um, you know, and and having to learn how to use the the computer more, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, for for old people like me, it's been a real challenge, but uh, it's been fun to be able to still connect with, with people on Zoom. Uh, for for meetings and family gatherings and classes. I don't know. I just have such a much greater appreciation for family and friends and for the service workers who are out there. But it, 
Now everybody just has to work together. It's so interesting to me, though, that at a time when you want people closest to you, kind of literally and figuratively, the pandemic means that you have to do so virtually. How, how has it been, Maggie? I heard you giggling in the background, as, I think, as your, <laughs> as your mother talked about uh, the travails of remote connection. But how has it been to try to navigate a time of grief when it's not necessarily possible to be in close contact? Well, it's a good question. You know, um, my, my father's death was one of the first of COVID in Denver. And so it got a lot of people's attention. But at the same time, we couldn't gather with friends or with family um, or even to be with him when he died. So um, it was a moment when we were all beginning to figure out how to mourn alone without a funeral, without the family coming together to comfort each other. We listened to my dad die over the phone and we had a wake over Zoom. Um, so we had to learn all of these new ways to connect and to um, be together, even though we are all so isolated. It was really a turning point, as you said. Mm -hmm. John, um, when Mike passed a year ago, it struck me as something of a wake-up call. Um, he was well-known, a humanitarian, passionate about housing and homelessness, and his story got picked up by national outlets as well. Did all of that coverage somehow imbue this terrible experience with some meaning or the, the chance, John, that others might learn from what you went through and what your father went through? Yeah, Ryan, I absolutely. I, I think I think it did. Um, it, it, at the time, it was it was a difficult experience to share so publicly and openly because the grief was so raw and 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 just a very strange the way this came out of nowhere. It was it was shocking, as I'm sure it is for hundreds of thousands of people that have lost loved ones through COVID or, or just uh, through normal death, uh, and they don't have that ability to connect. Um, so, but yes, I, I absolutely, in retrospect, think back about how, if it could help save or just uh, give information uh, or awareness to, to people, uh, absolutely, I think it, it really did do that. Aria? You are a sophomore at CU Boulder, and I understand you had an eye-opening encounter on, I think it was the Pearl Street Mall. Tell us about this. Yeah, so I was walking around with my other grandfather, and we got bumped into by a young dude not wearing a mask. And my other grandfather politely asked him to put on a mask, and he got really, really mad. And he was like, COVID isn't real. And I said, I'm sorry, like my gr other grandfather died of COVID. And his response was he probably deserved to die. Oh, goodness. And pretty, pretty something. <laughs> yeah. You sound almost speechless there. I don't know what I would have said. Did you say anything back? Well, I just walked away at that point because my dad was like being like, Aria, don't react. Um, <laughs> but I... It was just really hard to encounter because I go to a school 
where a lot of people don't take COVID seriously. And it's really just disheartening to see a lot of people that don't believe that this is a serious thing. Yeah, I mean, you're making reference, I imagine, to like that maskless party a few weeks back that kind of flew out of control in Boulder, eventually led to a confrontation with police and later arrests. Do you find yourself sharing with other young people your family's experience? I try to as much as I can to the point where it's almost like it's annoying. (laughs) (laughs) A little preachy, maybe? Yeah. Like my roommate likes to try to go out and go to parties and she wants to invite me to them. And I'm like, yo, my grandpa's dead. I can't go to a party. Hmm. And it's just, I just, every time I see somebody, like, I try to stay out of it because I don't want to start conflict. But, for example, I got approached by a homeless person the other day, and they were like, COVID isn't real. And I was like, my grandpa died of COVID. And then they pulled out a chainsaw and (laughs) waved it down to my face. So I walked away. They pulled Um, out a chainsaw. Oh, my. Yes. Okay, that is, does not sound safe. Uh, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are checking back in with the family of Mike Farley, uh, who passed away of COVID-19 early in the pandemic, March 23rd, 2020. He was 87, and we're uh, indeed checking back in about a year after our first interview with the Farleys. And I understand, uh, Nancy, you did an Irish wake over Zoom, a kind of family memorial. Did you, you did you do that again at the one year anniversary? No, no, we didn't. Um, my family got together. My immediate family was able to get together, um, and we were able to be outside. Oh, uh, and so. Um, I think we were able to be outside. I can't remember. <laughs> um, but no, we we did not. But I have heard uh, from all of these different relatives at various times. The the uh, calls still keep coming in, and the flowers and the notes. It's just pretty incredible. <laughs> Maggie, a year ago, you made a heartbreaking comment that you'd worried you might have brought the virus to your dad. And this was actually a fear you shared with him. Have you been able to learn anything more about that suspicion you had? Oh, yes. Uh, That was terrible. Um, Just lying awake at night wondering if I had brought this to him. Uh, But a few weeks later, my mom and I went for an antibody test. And it turns out that she had antibodies. She had had COVID, but a good month and a half before my dad got sick. And I didn't have antibodies. So that showed that I, I hadn't had COVID and I hadn't brought it to him. And that was a huge relief because I had been sort of traveling around the country and speaking to groups and um, especially to groups of seniors, teaching them about disinformation. And the thought that I might've been carrying the virus and speaking to a group of 200 seniors you know, just like the modern day typhoid Mary. It was a horrifying huh. thought, but especially to think that I might have brought it to my dad. So I was so relieved that I didn't. I can imagine. You're a journalist, Maggie, uh, and your career has included a 14 year stint as a foreign correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, 
based in Asia before working in New York as the United Nations Bureau Chief. I just wonder, with that international experience, what strikes you about how the U.S. and Colorado have responded, you know, compared to the places you've covered? It's been so interesting. We've seen a grand global social and medical experiment. Um, And what we've learned is that whether the country is authoritarian, like China or Vietnam, or whether it's democratic, like uh, South Korea or Australia, um, what matters the most is that leadership is the most important. Um, So the countries that have come out of this the best are the ones that tackled it early and aggressively and followed the scientific recommendations and not their political inclinations. Um, I was in Colorado when Governor Polis announced his, um, his actions. And I just remember driving and listening to the radio and thinking, oh, Colorado is on it. We're going to be in good shape. They recognize what needs to be done. Um, and then we're stymied, I think, on the national level. Um, but I think that Colorado is uh, in, in spots still in, in, in the lead. In the lead. You know, I think about the... The, the humanitarian work, the, the worldview of Mike Farley, the idea of coming together, of unity in many ways, uh, something he pursued when it came to, to housing, for instance. And uh, it occurs to me, John, that, I don't know, might your father be disappointed in this moment in the country when a pandemic hasn't necessarily bridged the political gaps in any way? Well, I don't know if he'd be disappointed. He would, he would, he would be concerned uh, that he was an optimist, and I think he would, he would say that um, there's still a, just enough people that can make this all come together and, and go the right way. Um, it, it, you know, it, he he wouldn't be without hope uh, at this, especially at this point where um, I, I think he would hold. Uh, hope that by summer or coming out into next fall, we're, we're somewhere 20 miles into the marathon. And, and I think enough of us are going to come together to get it done. But it, he would have great caution, though, too. He would have great caution and concern, but then he'd get that spark in his eye. And, and uh, I think he would be hopeful still, because uh, he could talk to anyone on any side of any divide um, and listen. So I, I think he yeah, would believe there's enough enough people that could do the same. Okay, we're going to do a quick roll call, uh, and you only answer if you feel comfortable doing so. Uh, are you vaccinated? Do you plan to be? Nancy? Yes, I am fully vaccinated. How'd that feel to get the shot? Did you think of it your... It felt wonderful. Did you it think of Mike? It felt wonderful. <laughs> did you think of Mike when that was happening? I certainly did. Yeah. I certainly did. Maggie? I got my second shot on Tuesday. Your second, okay. I, How'd you feel? Yeah. How'd you feel? Uh, yeah, it was it was fabulous, and it made me think about how far we've come since a year ago, and uh, now we have a vaccine, and we understand so much more about the virus and how it spreads. We don't we're not wiping down our groceries anymore, um, and you know it seems like there's light at the end of the tunnel, mm-hmm. but we are still in the tunnel. John? 
I, I've had my first shot two weeks ago, and next week I get my, my follow-up. Okay, and the youngest among us, Aria, what about the vaccine? I get, I get my vaccine on Monday, my first vaccine. On Monday. Let's close with the words that Mike would answer when he asked what he wanted for Christmas. Maggie, what would your, da- what would your dad say? Just a few seconds. <laughs> oh, he, he would say, all I want is love and a few kind words. <laughs> all I want is love and a few kind words. It seems like a nice message to wrap up on. Thank you so much for being with us. We've been talking about one of the first people in Denver to die of COVID-19 a little more than a year ago, Mike Farley. So thanks to his family. Nancy, Maggie, John, and Aria for sharing his story. The mega construction project across from Corey's Field in Denver is almost done. McGregor Square will host luxury condos, an iconic local bookstore, and an array of bars and restaurants. Oh, plus there's a hotel which is where we find CPR's Sarah Mulholland. Guest services. Mustafa Menex is the director of sales and marketing for the Rally Hotel. He's walking into a suite on the ninth floor of the 176-room property. It's got all the amenities you'd expect from a high-end boutique hotel. Mini bar, plush bathrobes. But what makes the room special is the sweeping view of Coors Field and the rally is leaning heavily on appealing to sports fans. The hotel will also be home to the Rockies Hall of Fame, set to open next year. For now, though, there are not a lot of guests. Most of the people walking the hallways are staff. And the only real buzz today was the sound of construction in the lobby. Opening a hotel is challenging as it is, but especially in a pandemic, it's even more so. The development's timing was thrown off by the pandemic and an unstable economy. The opening was supposed to be New Year's Day, on the heels of a spike of COVID-19 in Colorado. In addition to the hotel, McGregor Square includes offices, condos, bars, restaurants, and retail. It will be a 650,000-square-foot proving ground for what happens when you try to bring people back together after more than a year of avoiding public spaces. A trickle of people started to move into the condos last month, says Dee Chirafisi, a realtor at Kentwood, the agency selling the units. Marketing was nearly impossible at the start of the pandemic. We had already ordered peanuts and popcorn and beer. and I mean, we were ready to have a big party and got shut down. The plan was to have all the units sold by last September. Now, Chirafisi says they should be sold out by the end of this summer. She hopes that the company will be holding that party at Coors Field next month. She says excitement is building in the area. There's a lot of pent-up energy that people have had. They've been locked away for so long. The hotel and its restaurants are the only things open for now. But most businesses plan to be up and running before summer. The Tattered Cover Bookstore is moving to McGregor Square after leaving its longtime home on Wazi Street. CEO Kwame Spearman says he's feeling optimistic as vaccinations ramp up. Around June 1st, I think we're going to feel totally different. And I don't want to go as far as to say it's going to feel pre-COVID because I don't know if it's ever going to feel pre-COVID. But I think that there's an opportunity for a lot of foot traffic 
He says the new location's proximity to Coors Field and other recreational options is key. And he wants to make the most of the momentum of a new baseball season, one where fans can actually attend the games. Every retailer has just been surviving for the past you know, 14 months. And so to have an opportunity for us to hit summer and for people to be vaccinated and wanting to be with another again is something we're trying to take advantage of. At the Rally Hotel, Minex says they're working on finishing touches. Not all the rooms are ready for guests yet, and they're still waiting for some furniture to be delivered. He says the entire launch, down to the ribbon-cutting ceremony, was more subdued compared to a typical hotel opening. I think it would have been a, a more like a wow factor type of event. The hospitality business is among the hardest hit by COVID-19. In Denver, hotels suffered from the lack of tourists and the lack of business travel. Revenues were down more than 60 percent last year, according to CBRE, a real estate services company. But people are starting to venture out. Major League Baseball's decision to move the All-Star game to Coors Field in July will be a huge shot in the arm for the Rally Hotel and the entire development. A giant LED screen in the plaza is already broadcasting Rockies games. And Manek says there are plans for movie nights and other entertainment as the summer progresses. The goal here at McGregor Square is to create Denver's playground. This place used to be a stadium parking lot. It's totally transformed. They've built it. The question now is, will anybody come? I'm Sarah Mulholland, CPR News. The return of the Rockies games to Coors Field couldn't come soon enough for small vendors and pedicab drivers. Denverite's Kevin Beatty spoke with some of them as health restrictions loosen and activity picks back up. Outside Coors Field during a recent Rockies baseball game, a line of pedicab drivers waits for customers. Pedicabs are basically bikes that serve as small taxis. The pandemic has decimated this small industry, with fewer people out and about downtown. You know, today really hasn't been that good of a day, but I mean, I kind of like the fact that I see people out, you know? It kind of gives me hope. (laughs) Rick Campos is just one of 30 pedicab drivers who still has an active license in Denver. That's about a sixth of the number of licenses from a year ago. When big events shut down, Campos said his main source of income dried up, and it made for a tough year. I just started working more hours, completely like revolving my life around this <laughs> rather than having a regular schedule. I kind of had to like refigure it out. But now, many drivers say the crowds returning to Coors Field is a good omen. Andrew Friedson is an economics professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. He says better business for pedicab drivers does point to changes in consumer confidence. But one of the big questions is, how safe do people feel? And at the moment, we're in a situation where people are gradually feeling safer and safer and are more and more willing to engage in economic activity. But Friedson said finding that balance between economics and public health is tricky. Denver did see an uptick in COVID-19 cases recently, and growing crowds could make things worse. The state hopes this will be less of an issue as more people get vaccinated. Outside Coors Field, Jesus Rodriguez Jr. sells snacks with his dad. He says he's nervous about the health risks about being around so many people, especially for his parents. They both got COVID a few months ago. It's problematic, of course, because when we come in contact with other people, we have no control of them, you know? Last year has been difficult because this is his main source of income. Friedson, the CU economist, says workers like these face unique challenges during this pandemic. People with less education are more likely to be unemployed in a recession. In this one, they also risk getting sick when they go back to work. 
this is where the pandemic, both in terms of economic and public health impact, has been very unequal. Yeah, it's not pretty. And for some, this means making a hard choice out of necessity. I'm Kevin Beatty, Denverite. Before we go, I had one final question for Governor Jared Polis, who joined us earlier this hour. As you probably know, Major League Baseball announced it's moving the All-Star Game from Atlanta to Denver in protest of Georgia's new voting law. Polis helped negotiate the move. He's a huge baseball fan, and he excelled on the congressional team when he was in the U.S. House. So I asked, if he were a Major League player, what would his walk-up song be? I think I go with uh, We Are the Champions, Queen. <laughs> you can't go wrong with Freddie Mercury, can you? Absolutely. Did you see the biopic, Ryan? It was it was a lot of fun. I have not yet seen this biopic. I, I really, I know, oh, and, and my director is uh, angry at that fact across the glass. That's our show for today, with thanks to the Colorado Matters home team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to John Daly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 